Good morning. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. This morning, we will be speaking with Dr. Stephen Mugford, who will be discussing the role of governments in administering authority and control and why a growing group of academics and practitioners, including the Centre for Public Impact, are beginning to suggest that a different approach is needed and why governments must shift focus from authority over people to stewardship of complex systems. Stephen taught at the ANU from 1974 to 1996 and has over 40 years experience as an educator, researcher, facilitator and change management consultant for the government, military, private sector and non-government organisations. He's been both an advisor to senior leaders over many years and an active player in major change programs, preceded by a long and successful academic career specialising in sociology and social psychology, earning a major reputation as a scholarly researcher in criminology and drug policy. That is quite a bio, so welcome to the show, Stephen. It's lovely to have you with us this morning. Thank you, Zane. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about um, the organisation that you work with, Kinford Consulting, and what it is that you do? So Kinford Consulting itself is a very small business. It consists of two people, um, Pamela Kinnear, my wife and life partner, and me. And we decided to combine our names into Kinford. Uh, we decided Muggy didn't cut it as a, as, a, <laughs> uh, as a marketing device. And essentially, as a small company, um, Pamela, like me, has a PhD background in the social sciences, but her experience is wider than mine. I was an academic and a consultant. She's been a very senior public servant as well. What we do is we try to provide to individuals and organisations, many of them public sector but also private sector and NGOs, we try to provide services that, if you like, are capacity enhancing. And when, when you say that, in most cases people are talking about better machinery, better technology. We're talking about better social technology. I was um, I was reflecting this morning as I got up. You know, people are often asked, "Would you come and be a guest speaker?" When was the last time you heard someone say, "Would you come and be a guest listener?" And yet, listening as a skill, um, especially in complex situations, is probably more important than speaking. And so, our idea is to help people. Again, it's a cliche, but to develop a kind of emotionally competent method, both as individuals and teams and organizations, so that they do business better. They do business better by listening and engaging rather than by telling and broadcasting. Um, it's very interesting because if you look at it, we're set up as a society for people who know a lot or claim they do um, to broadcast their views. Um, there's a wonderful line in um, an old Monty Python skit where um, John Cleese says, and clever people like me who talk loudly in restaurants, and if you think about it, our society's organised around that concept. Um, we try, I mean, obviously we have to say things, we think we have expertise, but to a great extent our, what we're trying to do with our expertise is to draw on the knowledge of others. Again, there's a very famous study from the way that... Um, hill farmers in Scotland reacted to the fallout from Chernobyl. And the purport of that study was to say, yes, the scientists did understand about, you know, the uranium particles and all that sort of stuff and the way the wind was blowing, but the local hill farmers knew which way the wind landed and which paddocks would be affected and which paddocks would not be affected. And if you can't combine that abstract scientific knowledge on the one hand 
with the local practical knowledge on the other hand, then you risk a whole lot of, of miscommunication and unhelpful situations. Mm. And I imagine too that, you know, we live in a culture where visibility is really important um, for, for somebody to get um, attention to their project or their idea. So when you talk about listening, that seems to be the opposite of a lot of what we're doing to become very visible. Which is um, Yes, although I'll come back to that last point in a moment because I think it's a very important one. I mean, we do live in a culture, and, and we've seen it massively in recent times with Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, where opinionated, narcissistic, psychopathic males um, appear to draw a following um, and pontificate, and we've all seen what that's done in the case of, say, COVID in the United States. Um, having said that, I think there is a very strong movement um, and we've seen some really interesting stuff within, say, the senior levels of the Australian Public Service in recent times to try to change that, mm. to listen, to engage, not, not in, a, in, a, in a vacuous way. So the point is not that if I go to, you know, Scotty was brought up in McGregor, so if I go to McGregor uh, and people tell me that what they want there is a nuclear power station, I, I think that's unlikely, Scotty. <laughs> uh, but if I did, that doesn't mean I then build them a nuclear power station, okay? But it means that if that's what the people of McGregor want, I should at least be taking into account and we should be having a dialogue about why we would or would not do that. Um, so listening is not about being vacuous. It's about building engagement and understanding trying to find common ground, trying to find out what you know that I can build on and what I know that you can build on so that we find a collaborative way forward. And I think that's a really important notion. Um, and I think a lot of the problem is that over the last couple of centuries, our notion of democracy has tended to decay in a whole variety of ways ways and for a whole variety of reasons which we'll probably have time to talk about um, but as democracy decays then what happens is that the state and its operations become more and more separated from the from the lives of everyday people and you see that you know in 2016 um, my wife and I drove around the United Kingdom the opinion polls were saying that the Brexit referendum would not succeed but by the time we'd driven around outside of London for a few weeks and talked to people and seen all the things up, you know, all the signs up in the, in the streets and the paddocks, we were beginning to think that Brexit would succeed, which it did. Um, and it did so, in my opinion, for very poor reasons. Some, there were some genuine reasons, but a lot of it was rubbish. But it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it was very clear. There's a famous moment, I'm sure you, many of your listeners have seen it, where a BBC interviewer was interviewing Michael Gove, who's now a cabinet minister. And he said, but, you know, with respect, um, the experts, and the, he jumped across him, he said, the British people are sick of experts. Well, that's a terrifying, that's a terrifying reality. I mean, I actually think the statement was correct. The British people were sick of experts. The question the experts should then be asking themselves is, if they're sick of me, what am I doing wrong? Not what's wrong with the listener, What's wrong with me as the expert? And the experts, even now, if you go back and look at a lot of the literature, it's about making your message clearer, telling people why wearing a mask is a good idea. I mean, don't misunderstand me. I'm strongly in favor of those things. But clearly, once you've lost credibility and your expertise is considered to be a, you know, a corrosive influence rather than a benefit to society, then you can say, what is it today, Friday? You can say it's Friday, and half the people say, no, it must be Saturday. I know you're lying. <laughs> well, I think then some of the ancient um, practices of indigenous cultures 
before they've you know sort of adopted um, a westernized approach to things there were very um, strong uh, community groups for open discussion and listening that uh, I know one of the ways of um, helping a community member through a difficult time maybe they were acting in ways that um, were disruptive to the community rather than seeking to punish them they would have them sit in the middle of a circle and everybody in the community would tell them what they valued about them yeah and that connection they would then have and to see their value in part of the community uh, would often um you know, to go a long way to repairing some of the, you know, the disruptive behaviour or the um, conflict that had taken place. And, yes. you know, it was, a, it was a very, very successful way of, of, of dealing with conflict within community. Absolutely. I mean, what, as you implied in your introduction, I've had two overlapping careers. The first one was an academic. And towards the latter part of that, I did a lot of work around what's called restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the restorative justice literature, which is very strong in Australia, but particularly New Zealand and Canada, and to a less Stephen, would you just be able to explain what restorative justice okay. is? So the notion of restorative justice, Scotty, is about it's about re- it's not about being soft on crime, which is what a lot of people think. It's about asking the question about how we can redress what has occurred in ways that will allow us to move forward. So I will deliberately here raise a controversial topic for you, and I know it's controversial, and yet I know that a couple of the you know, Victoria's Supreme Court judges have argued for this. We should think about crimes like sexual assault um, not merely in terms of punishment, but we should also think about restoration. Now, for example, um, women who've been sexually assaulted, if you talk to them about what they want, mostly what they want is the offender to A, admit that they did it, B, to admit that they were wrong, C, to apologise, and D, to take steps that it won't occur again. No, it doesn't matter if you put someone in jail for 20 years or 30 years or cut their hand off or whatever. None of that will make right what has happened. The nearest thing you can do to making right is to create that possibility that the offender will take responsibility for their action. And in taking responsibility for their action will try to find ways that redress the harm that was done. Now, obviously, if it's like, you know, you burnt down my shed, well, restoring that might be paying for a new shed. That might not be terribly complicated. But even then, to apologise for having burnt down my shed and to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And because the question is, when this is over, how do we live together tomorrow? And this is very much the question that Mandela asked when, you know, he finally became president of South Africa. If they had pursued every white farmer and policeman and so on who had done wrong and punished them in a a conventional fashion, South Africa would never have moved beyond a kind of post-apartheid rage. You would have had nothing but white terrorism and so on. So what they did with um, that, that process was to try to find, obviously, the very serious offenders, the very serious offenders who were punished. But for the rest, they looked for truth and reconciliation. Admit you did it, apologize for it, can we move on into a a new South Africa? So restorative justice, it it doesn't replace punishment, but it it focuses more around redress. To go back briefly to sexual assault, I would favor, um, you know, widening the scope of what we do there to include not only criminal offenses, but making it also a civil offense and looking for a whole variety of ways in which we can say to the offender, you did something wrong. 
own it. Apologize for it. See what you can do to make good the harm you did. And in many cases, if you look at, I mean, I'll use the conventional term rape, although that's not a legal term any longer. The harm of rape in many cases is not physical. It's entirely emotional. It's the damage to the self, to the identities, to the sense of control and integrity. I can't repair that, but I might be able to help to redress that and put people back on the, on the road to moving beyond it. And I don't do that by, by, I don't do that by putting the victim in the witness box, having another QC metaphorically rape her all over again from the defense point of view, and then on the rare occasion that there's a prosecution and a conviction, lock this dickhead up. I mean, you know, really, that, it doesn't work well, you know, and if you look at that. So restorative justice is very much about trying to move beyond simple conventional eye for an eye tooth for a tooth logic and would this be under the assumption that the person that we're working with for restorative justice the the criminal for all extents and purposes um is not deeply on the end of the psychopathic spectrum where there's not going to be any remorse or any um, desire to change i think that's i think that's a brilliant question because i think one of the difficulties um and a colleague um Nova Inkpen, who's worked a lot. Um, she did a PhD in ANU with me, and she works now in the ACT government in this area. She and I wrote a paper some while ago about the relationship between restorative justice and youth. And it's a similar question there. If you're 15 and you've done something wrong, at what level of cognitive development have you reached? Because if, if I'm asking you to apologize, and I'm asking you for something you can't do rather than won't do, then I'm wasting my time. And there's a very interesting book by a guy called Robert Keegan who goes into this. And if I'll give you an example which might work for your listeners. At one point, he describes an interview with a young woman who's basically out of work. She's been doing a bit of part-time prostitution to support her drug habit and so on. And at the end of the transcript of this interview, he says, you may think that, I don't know what her name was, Mandy, you may think Mandy has no moral code. You're wrong. She has a very clear moral code. It goes like this. It's okay for me to steal because I need the money. It's not okay for you to steal from me because I need the money. Now, by the time you've reached a kind of adolescent to adult point of view, you, you think that's nonsense because you generalize the rule. But if you're a child, you don't. Donald Trump <laughs> is basically at that level. It's okay for me to do this because I, I want to be who I am. It's not okay for you to do this to me because I want to be who I am. So if people don't have the cognitive capacity, either through psychiatric disturbance, <clears throat> brain injury, which is very important, a lot of our offenders have, are brain injured, or cognitive development, then you can't take them fully maybe to that redress position because they're not capable of grasping really what they did. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, well, in that case, we give up and, and hit them with a cat of nine tails, but it does mean we have to start thinking about how then we cope with their needs to put them in a situation where they are unlikely to reoffend. I've just been involved at the edge of a process that is going on in the universe uh, to, in New South Wales about what should we do about releasing prisoners who suffer from psychosis. This really interesting, complex problem. You know, the prisoners themselves need the help, and they need. But on the other hand, society needs to be safe from them reoffending. Um, you know, if there was a simple answer to this and I knew it, I'd give it to you and then I'd be rich and famous. But there isn't a simple answer. In fact, most problems 
Um, uh, there is, you know, H.L. Mencken, who was a famous between-the-wars American cynic, famously said, for every human problem, there is an answer which is neat, simple, and wrong. And this is the difficulty in most of these areas. The answers are complex. And there is no perfect answer. There, there is no black answer or white answer. There's just shades of grey. And this is where you see on, on any um, public <coughs> announcement, and you know, there's comment boxes and opportunities for the public to express their opinion. There's as many opinions and strongly held opinions as there are people. So you often don't see consensus, even if it's a really, really simple statement or a, a simple idea that's being proposed. It can be something as simple as going onto the buy and sell on Facebook and somebody asking if anyone's got a spare door for a blue car. And somebody will say, sure, I've got a spare door, come and get it. And someone else will say, who do you think you are to be asking for a spare door? So, yeah. you know, it's again, that's human nature. I think you're describing very well. But, and that's why we need to look at things as systems rather Absolutely. Um, you know, complex systems. And if, we, if yeah. I take you back to a question you asked a little while ago about indigenous logics, mm -hmm. if you go back to the restorative justice mm -hmm. literature and you look at um, the way in which the Canadians have taken on indigenous Canadian logic, particularly the New Zealanders taking on the Maori and other Polynesian forms of... of, of the, it's about that. It's about engaging with people as people rather than people as cardboard cutout things. There's a very interesting study that John Braithwaite, I don't know if you know John, John used to be a professor, he's recently retired from the ANU, he's a world leader in, in these areas, an incredibly um, good guy. He did a study some years ago um, in which basically what they did was they took sort of uh, slices of people and the first group of people they said, right, um, here's the charge, um, here's the conviction, here's the sentence. What do you think? And it would have been a fairly controversial crime, right? So the first tranche of people said, oh, should have had twice as long. Okay, so here's the charge. Here's, a, here's some of the evidence. And the more evidence they gave, the more that, of what came out in the trial they provided, and each time they added more information, people were saying, oh, yeah. And eventually, when they showed people more or less the full transcript of the trial, and then they said, well, the judge gave them five years, people say, yeah, that seems about fair. So it's this, it's this stereotyped logic that we have. And, and you picked up a point about um, social media. Social media is, I mean, I'm a big fan of social media in many ways, you know. I'm, despite my age, I'm locked into all this stuff. But it has a really negative downside. It really does produce stereotyping and filter bubbles. And people only talk to each other who agree with them. I don't know if you saw the other day, but this bizarre outcome in the United States where an ICU nurse wrote a really interesting piece. What's it like to be nursing people who are dying of COVID saying this can't be true. It isn't happening. There is no COVID. They're dying of it and they don't believe in it. So that's the people who are dying of it. People who are dying of it. So the patients it. were the saying. The patients who are dying of it as, as they're sort of putting them on, on the ventilator and they're, you know, they're coming towards there. They say, this is nonsense. I, I don't have COVID. There is no COVID. It must be pneumonia. It must be mm. head lice, whatever, you know. It's funny, though. You're talking about filter bubbles and, and, and odd views of human nature. I mean, since probably the 70s or so, a really large example of this without any social media or anything like that has really taken over very strongly and I think they call it economics um, where there's a view of um, a view of people as economic man as they call it who is this completely self-serving knows the whole market this really uh, abstract vision of humanity uh, what do you think of that one 
I'll, I'll start with a confession. I have a first class honours in economics from the London School of Economics. What do I think of economics? I'm a chess player. Chess is a wonderful game. Um, there's a, a prescribed board. There are a set of rules. You can move pieces around. And if you're brilliant like Magnus Carlsen, you can become world champion. I, I fear economics is much the same. It's a brilliant intellectual game. Sometimes it's really useful. But uh, I hope your listeners will, will bear with me if I go on to this. Back in the 1880s or 1890s, there were two people who were professors of economics, Max Weber and Vilfredo Pareto. They both came to the same conclusion. Economics has solved the problem of rational choice. Since it doesn't seem to explain much about the world, we need something that they then went on to call sociology. And these are two of the great dead white men of you know, founding fathers. <laughs> and it's very clear that um, you know, human beings are rational and non-rational. I don't mean irrational. They're rational and non-rational. So if, if it's a question of you know, um, you know, buying the milk here that's $1.50 and a milk there that's $1.80, we're probably moderately rational. We make a choice. And we either say, well, I'll buy the $1.50 because it's cheaper or I'll buy the $1.80 because I want to support the local farmers. But I make a rational choice, right? But when it comes to a lot of other stuff, we don't make rational choices. We make non-rational choices. And then we back them up. And the more you tell me I'm wrong, the more determined I am to be right. And this is how we arrived at Brexit. This is how we yeah, arrived yeah. at Brexit. Um, you know, it's... It, and again, you know, I'm going to say an odd thing here. You'll have picked up from what I say, what I think about Donald Trump. <laughs> okay. So how come Trump got elected? Well... Just stand back for five minutes. Over the last 30 or 40 years, the United States has become more and more involved in global capitalism. We've got a problem there, tech. Okay. And as that, that global capitalism has spread, certain parts of the United States have done very, very well. Thank you very much. Okay. If you live in San Francisco or New York City or somewhere like that, it's done really, really, really well. But if you live in Iowa or Nebraska, I'll do a very bad American accent. You know, I was born and brought up here, and my old man was brought up. We all go to church. We, you, know, you know, he used to work in the tractor factory. Now it's empty. It's just full of druggies. It's tough out there. If you ever saw that movie, Hell or High Water, did you see the great movie, Hell or High Water? It starts with these two guys driving into a West Texas town and an old clapped-out car. I'm not going to spoil the plot because this is the first two minutes. And they get out of the car in a parking lot, and there on the wall is a piece of graffiti. Two tours of Iraq and no bailout for people like us. So there's millions and millions of people out there in middle America who are really, really hurting. And the educated elites, people who are probably friends of mine, <laughs> who, who live in San Francisco and New York City, um, who are doing very nicely. People who lived in London who are doing very nicely out of, the, out of being in the EU haven't really picked up the tab for the people who live in Iowa or Yorkshire or wherever it might be. And those people have reached the point where in some cases, you know, if you went to them and said, you know, Brexit will hurt you, their answer, I won't use the crude language, but I don't give a rat's, it'll hurt those bastards more. Mm, Chris Hedges and a guy called Sacco, Sacco, 
who has the last name, but I can't remember yeah. it, um, who's a graphic novelist, have brought out a, an amazing graphic novel. They actually drove around the USA going to places they call sacrifice zones, like Detroit oh, and right. the Appalachians and yeah. Pine Ridge and all of the places where economics has just taken over and people pretty much stand for nothing. And they've gone around and it's an amazing, amazing novel. I'll yeah. uh, try and remember the name of it <laughs> and, and <laughs> it in at the end of the show. And in a way, we're picking up here on a theme which is central to the stuff that, it, at least in part, that I've been working on in recent months. I'll make a very simple point in a way. Let's distinguish between a subject and a citizen. All right. If we compare either of those to, a, to someone unfree, a slave or a serf, the subject in a, in a modern country like ours has many freedoms. What do you mean by subject? Well, this is my point. They are free to do something, but ultimately they are subject to the law. They lack, in many cases, the capacity to do things. You know, Anatole France famously said, the rich and poor alike are equally free to starve beneath the bridges of Paris. Um, you and I, Scotty, are free to buy a Learjet. I actually can't afford one, can you? No, no. no funny not, that, not isn't it? Not at the moment. No, but the point is, I can afford... When I become rich, though. When you become rich, yes. I can afford to, to live quite comfortably. At the start of the COVID epidemic, someone said quite nicely, and I thought it was brilliant, we are not all in the same boat. We are in the same storm. Now, the boat that I'm in is pretty neat, actually. You know, it's like a passenger liner with stabilising fins and a good cafe and all that sort of stuff. I benefit from enormous numbers of privileges. You know, I'm white. I'm male. I'm educated. I'm a baby boomer, which was actually the best generation to have been since the war in terms of economic opportunity, etc., etc. I have enormous privileges that advantage me compared to many others. Out there in that same storm, there are people who are in rowboats with no oars and no and no um, and a leaky bottom. Yeah, a le yeah. Mm. And so those pe I'm a citizen, right? in the sense that I benefit from the society I'm in, it gives me all sorts of rights and obligations, and I pay my taxes, okay? And I think I should pay my taxes because my taxes pay for stuff that we all need. But when I'm a subject, I am at the edge. I have very little capability, very little capacity. One of the things we've seen with COVID, for example, we saw it in Singapore with the guest workers. We've seen it, I think, honestly, around the edges of Melbourne and, 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 um, and now Adelaide. People in very marginal occupations who are, let's say, probably breaking the rules. It's easy for me to sit there and say, obey the rules. Those rules don't hurt me at all. They don't cost me much, right? Okay, we had a bit of a lockdown. So what happened? I stayed at home in my very nice office working with my partner who shares lots of interests with me. I was never lonely. I was never threatened, you know? But if I'm working two jobs... And I don't speak very good English. I'm trying to hold my family together. And I end up going to a place that perhaps shouldn't have gone to, not wearing a mask I should have worn, catching COVID and spreading it. We can all get very self-righteous about that. But actually, we should ask ourselves the question, what put the person in that leaky rowboat? If you ask the question, what put the person in that leaky rowboat, you ask a very different question about why we shouldn't have people in leaking rowboats, why we should actually be looking at making sure that everybody can live a good life. You go back to, right back to the beginning of, of Australian Federation, there was a thing called the Harvester Decision. Now, the language of the Harvester mm -hmm. Decision was a bit 
you know, sexist of the day, a man's income and so on. But the basic concept was there should be an income that will guarantee the capacity to live in frugal comfort. So it's the living wage. A living wage, yeah. a decent living wage, a, a mm -hmm. wage that gives you what some people have called dominion. Mm -hmm. It's not merely the freedom to, it is the capacity to. We have a society in which you have lots of freedoms, don't have the capacities. Right? And, and, you know, and, this, and this has been, you know, you, you mentioned about economics mm -hmm. before, Scotty. I, I wouldn't agree with you about economics, but what I would agree with you about is free market economics, which has been rampaging since the 70s. Um, and what has it brought us? What it's brought us is, is rapidly increasing inequality within rich countries. By the way, it has also brought decreasing inequality between countries. So if you look at it, um, the middle income earners of China and Vietnam and countries like that have narrowed the gap onto middle income earners in Australia, the UK, United States. At the same time, the rich in the United States, the UK, and Australia have screamed away into the distance. And part of the, the resentment of those people in Iowa or country Queensland or Yorkshire is driven by the fact that I'm standing still, these people are vanishing over the horizon, the rich, and meanwhile, those people I have thought of as poor are catching up on me. What's happening? What's well, happening? you're getting poorer, essentially, aren't you? Yeah. Re re relatively speaking, you are getting poorer. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's a thing, you know, you know, you would have heard people talk about the American dream. So what's the American dream? The American dream is I'm better off than my pop, and he was better off than his pop. Again, it, forgive me if I use, you know, the gendered language, but that's the way people think. It's not true anymore. It was true for my generation, baby boomers. Baby boomers were better off than their parents, who were better off than their grandparents. My kids are not better off than me. But the media is still trying to sell that I know. idea. And this is where then people are taking the blame upon themselves. What have I done wrong that I haven't achieved the American dream or the Australian dream? Yeah. I mean, the main thing millennials did, did wrong, and of course they didn't do it wrong. <laughs> they got born at the wrong time. Yeah. You know, I got born in, just after the war. Well, I think this is where they talk about demography, right? right? You know, yeah. it, it's mm. so many things influence that. It's not necessarily, or you probably know Malcolm Gladwell. Um, who wrote The Tipping yeah, Point, and, yeah. um, it talks about that, you know, it, it, a lot of it is, is it beyond your control and it's whether or not you're fortunate enough to be placed in a certain time period in a certain location with certain resources and to be, you know, white or male or female or, you know, there's lots of things that are beyond your control that will benefit you or create challenges for you. Absolutely. I mean, I mean I'm going to mention Marx and Engels now, not because I'm a Marxist politically. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Um, I'll put a footnote in here very strongly for your <laughs> listeners. Most communist societies end up with death camps. I'm not a Marxist politically. But Marx and Engels' analysis of how things work is brilliant. And to, to very lightly paraphrase them, they say, people make their own history, but they do so in circumstances that are not of their choosing. And I guess that the, the work that I'm trying to do nowadays around politics is to build on that and say, okay, if people make their own history... And we can trust them, because I do think we can trust the majority of people to behave well. Then we can see that there's many aspects of community, collaborative, cooperative life that build good stuff, build collaboration, build resilience, build local community. On the other hand, if they do so in circumstances of not of their choosing, we should be asking the question, how does the state improve the context in which they choose? And I'll give you an, uh, an example. 
for the last, again, I come back to your comment, Scotty, about, about rampant market economics. The last 40 years have been devoted to the idea that tax is bad. Tax is bad. We should cut it. Like, what? Excuse the language. What the fuck? How on earth are we going to pay for hospitals, roads, schools, all these other things if there's no taxation? Taxation is not bad. Taxation is not good. Taxation is taxation. Some taxes are good. Some taxes are bad. Some benefits are good. Some benefits are bad. What we should be asking is, what's the optimum level of taxation that we can have that will produce a society? I don't imagine a society of complete equality, but a society in which the gap between the rich and the poor is sufficiently constrained that we don't run into the kind of extremes that we're doing now. Um, so perhaps it's, you know, we're looking at ways, like you talk about change management a lot. We're looking at ways through change manage, management to basically level things out a little bit. So uh, I remember that um, just doing the uh, recent elections we had on the ACT, um, ACT and not the ACT Greens leader, but our, our National Greens leader, Adam Bant, did a wonderful little short video about the inequality in Australia using grains of rice. You might have seen yes. that one. Yes. And until people saw that visual, they just didn't quite grasp how big a difference there was between the level of where they were at and the level of where the upper echelon was at or where the individuals that they perceived were doing some of the financial damage yes. that our economy were at. Yes. And when Scotty and I were watching this video uh, after a show one day, we, we were just laughing. We said, we're not even one grain of rice. We're like half a grain of rice. <laughs> you know? So it was like half a grain of rice compared to a mountain of rice. You know? Yes, and other people looking into the empty rice packet yeah, and wondering yeah. if there's a bit of dust left in the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's you know. so, so through through change management and through a design to create a, create a more level playing field, this is assuming we have a government that would like to do that. It's not just serving their masters. Um, you know, I'm sure there's definitely components within the government which are very genuinely committed to supporting us, but there's also components which aren't. H how do we go about doing that? Like you've worked with the governments, you've consulted for them, you've consulted with high levels of the public service. Again, it's it's um, if I had the answer to that question mm. and I knew it for sure, I'd be rich and famous. Mm. Let me answer you slightly elliptically. Which are the happiest countries in the world according to the survey measures? And the answer is places like Denmark and Sweden. Um, by the by, if you rank countries in terms of this from top to bottom, we're in the upper echelons. We're not, we're not down with the United States. I'll come back to the States in a minute. So what do we know about Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Iceland and Finland? The answer is they're some of the higher taxing countries in the world. In fact, there was a big study recently in Denmark asked people what they thought about taxation. And Dan Danes said they thought it was a really good idea. Okay. The Swedes so, did too. Yeah. Scandinavian countries tax and distribute. They don't, despite all the sort of nonsense that Thatcher and Reagan came out with, they don't prevent um, entrepreneurialism. They don't prevent business. They don't prevent people making profits and doing well. What they do is they set limits on that so that they, they, the gap between the rich and the poor is continually constrained and the poor, relatively speaking, people in their countries have enough and they have enough capacity and dominion to be citizens and to feel commitment to their country. That's where we need to be going. Historically, we haven't done too badly on that. The historical studies show that um, our system of redistribution over time has been pretty good. Um, 
And and when we did put in that kind of free markety stuff, if you I don't know how if you remember this, but when Keating really was keen on that sort of stuff, they brought it in with one hand and they brought the accord in with the other. So rather than just letting the market run rampant, they tried to create more space for entrepreneurialism, as it were, with you know, with one hand. But with the other hand, with the accord, they tried to ensure that there was sufficient cohesion uh, and sufficient distribution of wealth that it wouldn't. Um, gut Australia. At the same time, by the way, New Zealand, a country which generally does pretty well on this, went ballistic on free market economics and nearly fell apart for a few years. So, you know, the the idea of the free market economics running uh, wild is a bad one. I said I'd mention the states, go back to the states. There's a very interesting argument now that the states is no longer a democracy in the full sense. If you have a look at the democratic index that the economist produces, they now list the United States as a flawed democracy. Right? Um, and it's basically a democracy that's increasingly democratic in name only and falling apart. It's really seriously problematic. We don't want to go there. At least I don't want to go there. I don't think anyone sitting in this studio, and I bet none of our listeners out there today, want to go there. So we have to ask the question, if we don't want to end up like the United States, but we'd be more like, we'd be more happy to end up somewhere like Denmark, what do we have to do? And we ha- I think above all else, we have to be having conversations. And like we are well, now. this leads pretty well into um, a, uh, a report that you've been working on, um, which is uh, it's part of a much bigger project, which is being run by the uh, Institute for Integrated Economic Research and the Global Access Partners on, on uh, national resilience. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about that, and I'll tell you a bit about the origin of it. Um, a personal story, if I may. Mm, go for it. The guy who heads this up is a guy called John Blackburn. He and his wife, Anne Bozitsky, are, are the key founders in the IIER group. Um, I've known John for a very long time. He used to be Deputy Chief of Air Force uh, when I worked with the running the Air Force senior leadership team, and we struck up a bond because he's just he's on the same wavelength. I mean, he's a really, really smart guy. And he got into this initially through the question of supply chains. Um, he became, because, because of his interest in defence, he asked questions like, you know, for example, under difficult situations, uh, where would our fuel come from? And it turns out we've only got about two or three weeks' worth of fuel in the country. We are utterly dependent on overseas supply chains. If they cut off for a month, we would probably starve. Why would we starve? Because Woolworths would have no diesel for their trucks to bring stuff to the local supermarket and you'd have no petrol to get in your car to drive there. It's going to make the great 2020 toilet paper crisis look minor, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, all, we all remember that all too well. Imagine if that, if that was replaced not by a toilet paper crisis but a, a food crisis of the mm. same kind, a fuel crisis, a food crisis. So John originally got interested through this notion of supply chains and one thing led to another and so he set up this process to look at and there's a number of groups working on a whole variety of topics how do we build a national resilience strategy now again i'll give you a kind of a footnote here what do you mean by resilience and there's two meanings to resilience one is bounce back the other is be adaptive to move forward and we're very strongly of the second kind Does anybody out there who's listening to us today think that by, let's say, August of 2021, we will be back where we were before COVID started? I don't think so. This has changed the world. 
it's changed the world in very interesting ways. Take working from home. Lots of people work from home. Now, again, we're back at this same question about which boat are you in? Okay, some people work from home in their home office with their internet connection on their PC, and it was great. Other people were sitting on the, the lounge with their tablet on their knee while their two um, preschool-aged children bit their ankles. <laughs> and uh, the first person was glad not to go back to the office, and the second person was thinking, I'll say it here, she was thinking, I can't wait to get back to the office. <laughs> but, but, but essentially... COVID has changed things. We're not going to go back. And in fact, big changes like that are always the same. We never go back. We don't bounce back. We have to bounce forward. So we're interested in, in what is it that it takes to bounce forward? And again, I'll give you a really simple answer here. It's much more complicated than this, but we need strong communities and we need a context in which strong communities can thrive. That's right. I mean, so the the whole big projects looking at culture and community, environment, politics, economy, health, energy, trade, it's covering the whole lot. And your your uh, your sort of stream of this is actually culture and community, isn't it? Very much. And very much the sort of stuff we've been talking about mm. this morning, Scotty. We're asking that question, what would governments need to do to make it possible for all of those positive tendencies that people do have to flower i give you i hope this isn't too homespun a metaphor but you know there is a story that says if you ask really successful dairy farmers what they do they will say we grow good grass because if you grow good grass the cows will eat it and turn it into milk right you don't have to i mean obviously you have to look after the cow's health but essentially the cow will produce the milk if you produce the grass now Again, it's very, very cheesy sort of... Oh, that's awful. That's a terrible pun. But it's a very simple metaphor. But, it, but it, think about using it. If a government said, my job, our job, is to make this society to create the metaphoric equivalent of the grass so that the local actions can benefit and the sort of stuff we want to see from communities, groups, organizations, institutions, companies, if all of those people are working well together, then we will become a resilient society. We will have social cohesion. We will have trust. Trust is huge. And yet trust has been going down across the Western world now for 40 years. Um, our trust levels are still moderate, but they're not what they were. They're not as low as the states in the UK, but they're not what they were. How do we build trust? How do we build cohesion? And, you know, if you look at it, yes, there are people out there who are self-interested. Yes, there are people out there who are nasty. The vast majority of people are not. Mm. Have you ever heard of that guy, Adam Salapek, the one who's walking out of Eden? No. A brilliant interview the other night on, on Late Night Live. The guy decided to walk, walk from the Rift Valley where humans started, to Tierra del Fuego, which is the furthest in which the land migration took people all the way up through Asia, across the land bridge, and all the way down through the Americas. It's a seven-year project. He's about halfway through it. Um, and at the moment, when, they, when Philip Adams interviewed him, he was um, in Myanmar in a kind of quarantine situation. And... Um, it was an incredible interview, and this is one of the things that really struck me. Adams asked him about the way he was received as he walked into all of these communities, and his summary was, everywhere I went, 
I met an open hand, not a clenched fist. I think that's humanity. Until you arrive at the nation state. And then we lock up people like that, don't we? Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's, and, you know, you see these things all the time. And there was one recently, there was a, a bad storm somewhere on the British coast and two people were washed into the sea. Quick as a flash, passers-by formed a human chain to rescue them. They didn't know these people. They could have just let them drown. Homo economicus, which is what you were talking about mm-hmm, earlier, mm-hmm. would have said there's no, there's no marginal interest in saving these people. Let them drown. But we don't. We don't. Do you see that? Um, was it in China the other day where the British diplomat dived into a river to save someone? Yeah. Why? Because that's what it's humans do. It's intrinsic to do. our nature. Yeah. We are a social group. We are a social mm-hmm. species. We, we rescue each other, right? Well, I think it was Lynn McTaggart, who's a journalist and psychologist. She said through her research that she believes all human beings that are healthy functioning and not psychopathic um, are hardwired to care, to share and to be fair. That's human nature. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so the question then becomes, what would it take to stop people? Was it share, care, fair? Mm-hmm. What would it take? Well, that's pretty easy. You start to set up situations of exploitation, inequality. Um, and it's, it's not only that thing about you're doing bad to me, I can see you doing bad to me. I reach the point where, and again with the Brexit and, and so on, you say, yes, this will hurt me, but by God, it'll hurt you more. <laughs> I'm already hurting. Yeah, you, you know, I will take you down with me. And that's a, I mean, that is a very basic... I mean, you have to have driven human beings into the corner before they start to act like that. Well, we've driven back to survivalism, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. Part of the justice instinct. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, you, you know this, I, I don't know how much you know about this, but you know, if you put two dogs into two cages, one next to each other, and you teach them to do a trick, and every time they do a trick, you give them a, a reward, and then one day you get them to do the trick and you reward dog A, but not dog B... Dog B will turn their back and they won't play any longer. <laughs> I mean, dogs. You can do this with almost any species you like. We have an intrinsic sense of fairness. It's like, you, you, you gave that one a treat and not me? Well, up yours. <laughs> yep. and, and as we do that, you know, human beings are very strong on that. Um, you know, that, the famous prisoners' uh, uh, dilemma experiment. You know, I, Zeta and I are in an experiment. Scotty comes up and he says to me, I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. You have to give Zena some of that money. If she accepts the share you give her, then she keeps hers and you keep yours. If she says no, I take it all back. And she knows what's going on. This is not a hidden game. She knows exactly what the game is. So I said, okay, what's the economist say? The economist says, keep 99 and give her one. She's a dollar better off. (laughs) (laughs) If I offer her much less than about 40%, and ideally 50%, she will say, I'm going to miss out on 15 bucks, but you're going to miss out on 85. (laughs) And she'll say no. It's a really robust finding because it's not fair. Mm. We didn't share. So again, you know, the question is, what can we do to to make these things? And again, I'm I'm not against business. I'm not against the market. I'm not against entrepreneurialism. I'm prepared to recognise what the, you know, the right of politics says, you know, set the market free, have some dynamism, all that. So up to a point, that's really good. If we didn't have that, we probably still would be living in caves. Okay. 
But once you just let that free and then you just let nothing else, you know, if you take a, a Thatcherist position, for example, you just end up with a situation of corrosive inequality, you know, and the, and the poor the poor are starving in the streets. I mean, many of your uh, listeners, I'm sure, have had the same experience I've had. You go to an American city and you walk through it and you're stepping over the homeless. Mm. Mm. Well, I actually lived in North America for 25 years. That's why I wasn't, I was saying to you earlier, I wasn't in Canberra yeah. the whole time. Yeah. So it was a real shock for me to see the difference coming from sort of an early 1990s Australia um, going over to North America where there was prolific homelessness even at that time, yeah. which has only increased. Yeah. And coming back to Australia and then seeing some of those things happening here yes because when i left i think the only person you saw doing any panhandling was a pretty talented musician who was doing it because he enjoyed it or she yeah. enjoyed it and you never saw a homeless person you never saw people begging i mean that 25 years ago right in that quarter of a century we now are mirroring a lot of what i saw in north america when i first moved there and it's a terrifying mm -hmm. it's a terrifying thing I mean, you probably saw on the television even yesterday queues outside food banks in the united states mm -hmm three miles long food insecurity has doubled during the course of this pandemic um and you know the the, the idea the american idea of log cabin to um to white house actually it's basically log mostly log cabin to mortuary you know that's the truth and you know they're very strong tendency then to blame those who cannot succeed um, who also incidentally tend to be hispanic or black <laughs> you know, I so mean, these, these, minorities yeah, and, yeah, and these and structural yeah. inequalities, you have to be blind or stupid not mm -hmm. to see the impact of these inequalities. Well, it's historical, isn't it? It's the colonised people versus the colonisers, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. That wealth disparity continues through generations and here it is. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the British and others ran a slave trade through the 1600s, 1700s. They imported lots of Africans into America and still today... The, the racial visibility of that is striking and stark mm. and and society is divided upon I mean I don't think the United States ever got over the Civil War really no. you know the South surrendered militarily but that I don't think it ever really surrendered culturally no and mm. also I mean you look at the history of the UK which um, also had prolific slavery up until a point and it wasn't because of people's moral code that that changed it became um, uneconomical that was the only reason that that ended. Yeah. So, you know, there in itself is the economy piece you're talking about. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, well, I, I have no doubt about the, the moral <laughs> desires of the people who were anti-slavery, well, but, but it's were. like but a lot of other things. The reason they were able to successfully end the trade was because it was no longer economically <laughs> right. viable. For it suddenly the became a good idea to agree with them. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, well, it's cheaper for you to pay a person a little bit and have them look after themselves <laughs> than it is for you to look after everybody. Absolutely. Food, boarding, everything else like that that you would have to do with a slave. Yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We're, we're waxing off into the far distant past. But yeah, I'm going to bring you back to systems thinking in a minute. <laughs> okay. Well, this is an example of systems thinking. Why did the Roman Empire collapse? Well, the Roman Empire collapsed in part because it stopped expanding. As long as the Roman Empire expanded, it colonized new land. Mm. That gave it new, new places to raise crops and a new supply of slaves. And, and resources, minerals. And resources, yeah, yep. Yeah. And the price of sta slaves stayed low because they were continually grabbing them. Cool. So we, we grab all these slaves from Gaul and Britain and North Africa and so on. Then one day we stop expanding. 
The supply of slaves dries up. We have to breed slaves. Slaves don't breed unless you give them a reasonable standard of living. Very much what you were saying just now. Now, all of a sudden, I've invested in my slaves. And actually, historically speaking, I'm slowly turning them into serfs, not slaves. As I do that, the my estate is doing very well, but it, it's not got as much money. So I can't pay taxes. If I can't pay taxes, the Roman government can't run the legions because there's no money coming in. And if the legions aren't being paid, their loyalty to Rome starts to decline. And by and by, the, the Huns arrive and the legions say, no, stand that way, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing you know, the Huns are at the gates of Rome and the whole system's collapsed. Yeah, that's, and it's, that's a very good example well, of systems. Well, system in ancient Rome too. You had the proles and the plebs. Yeah. So there was that status as well. Right? Absolutely. Who could vote, who couldn't. So and you, citizens but, could vote. But as long as you could keep them happy with, with um, bread and circuses, it wasn't too bad. But you can't afford bread and circuses if you've got no taxes mm -hmm. so we're back to taxation mm -hmm. suddenly you know Ta Roman taxation is very interesting but that's another, another topic but that's for another, another day one of the, the systems of government authority, <coughs> authority and control which could be better served as, as, as a stewardship right yeah yeah and you know I think the thing about complexity and that's what mm -hmm. we really need to talk about if you talk about systems you're talking about complexity I'm going to make a very pedantic point here. People often talk as if complicated and complex are the sort of synonyms. They're not. A jet engine is complicated, but you can understand how it works and you know what the tolerances on the turbine blades are and there is a right answer and if it breaks, the engineer can fix it. Complexity is not like that. Complexity is <laughs> God knows what's happening out there. Um, again, I'm going to quote someone I don't approve of politically, but I like their statement. Deng Xiaoping famously said in order to cross the river you must feel the stones you know you have to put your foot out and feel for the stepping stones you can't we had committed in our in our society to a completely dead model of causality you know people talk about planning change and they talk in the language of 19th century physics linearity rationality predictability even to the point where we have these wonderful things like key performance indicators, which we have defined in advance and we measure you against, which is actually hopeless for the form of predicting the future, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely hopeless if you if you have a complex situation. So, in a complex situation, you need a series of capacities to adapt, to 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 experiment, to reinforce success to back away from failure, to consider how you might do things differently. You need to cross the river by feeling us the stones. One of the things I like in life is strategic planning because um, we make quite a lot of money going to companies, picking up the wreckage after they've tried a strategic plan. <laughs> Strategic plans. So I was looking at your bio and I saw that you do a lot of repair work. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Strategic plans are great. Um, you can put them underneath the uh, monitor to lift it up mm. a bit. You can hold the door open with them. You can fill up the bookshelf with them. They don't do anything. <laughs> and they're really good. You can apply for grants to have oh, them you done. Can oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's really good to have a strategic plan. Yeah. But most of these plans, I, I've never forgotten, you might remember um, a guy called Michael Moore who used to be the health minister here. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Michael and I uh, were... were, were worked together. In fact, I, 
I was his numbers man on his election years and years and years ago. After he finished up, we did some very interesting work together as consultants. And one of the things we did was we reviewed the National Environmental Health Strategy. That's a whole story I'll go another time. But the, my, my main thing is that we would go out to places like Perth and we would go to see environmental health officers and they'd say, so what can I do for you? They said, well, we're here to talk to you about the National Environmental Health Strategy. And they'd go, oh. And they sort of scratch their head and they'd look up at the bookshelf and they'd say, um, that'd be this thing, would it? And they'd pull off this big, big folio. And we'd say, yeah, yeah. So what do you think of this? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> never what, read it. Never read it. <laughs> what do you mean never read it? I'm too busy. I'm too busy worrying about rats in restaurants to read this stuff. So why do we have a National Environmental Health Strategy? Because it made a few people feel very good. <laughs> It had very limited impact on improving environmental health. Which well, it's is like all these royal commissions into things which five yeah. years later were still in the same place. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, I mean, again, this, what I'm trying to say to you, it's not easy. It's not easy to deal with complexity. But what you need to be, and again, these are buzzwords, but you do need to be flexible. You do need to be agile. Dwight Eisenhower had a very nice point. He said, plans are useless. Planning is everything. So planning is about thinking where we're going, what we're trying to do, how we're trying to do it, staying alert to what's happening around us, seeing which stone we can stand on in the river and whether that will get us across. But a plan often is just a waste of time. Now, sometimes you have to have, I mean, you know, you can't just sort of say, oh, well, let's all turn up and invade Europe tomorrow, shall we? Yeah, okay, you, you bring some ships, I'll bring some troops. Obviously, you have, to, you have to coordinate activities. But in the long term, plans are useless. We, so what, what are the capacities for dealing with complexity? That's one of the things that I'm very interested in, and we're trying to bring it to bear on this question of resilience. So coming back to resilience again, you were talking about um, what it means for us to be resilient as a society. I mean, you hear this word bouncing around a lot now because we're talking about COVID recovery. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how to do that effectively. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's any politician will be on that platform right now talking about their COVID recovery policy. So how can we apply this idea of resilience the way you understand it to our COVID recovery? Well, again, I'm going to sound a, a little bit banal when I answer this, but stay with me for a moment. We need to be having ongoing conversations and we need to be, I mean, in, in a sense, we need to remain alert to what's happening in front of us. And we need not to think magic. For example, there are going to be vaccines. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, those vaccines look promising. Good. In Australia, which is a relatively civilised country, most people will take the vaccine if it's available. Good. Not everybody will. We've already seen this whole anti-vaccine thing that was well light before COVID. Um, and so the idea that the vaccine will magic bullet solve our problem is not true. We would need to know two things. One, that the vaccine was long-term effective. And secondly, that we would have enough people taking it to get herd immunity. We need to know it was good grass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the cows. That's exactly. Yeah. And we're not sure any of those things yet. Once we've done that, we then have to ask the question, because we are an economy that's completely integrated into the world. We always have been, by the way. Australia has been an export economy almost since foundation. Unlike, say, New England, 
where all the people went from Britain to set up and become yeoman farmers and be self-sufficient, we came over here and set up things like wool plantations and exported wool back to the home country and so on. So we've always been integrated into the global economy. Um, and we've, as you know, I mean, your average Australian, what do you do when you're 20? You go to Europe or America, right? You did. <laughs> um, is that going to be safe in the future? Well, I think we, even you know, now that when you there's a book that lists you know countries that are safe to travel to in you know in order of how more safe or less safe, and yeah. I think North America is quite high on the not safe list. Yeah, well, already. I, I know New Zealand's on the safe list. Who else is? <laughs> <laughs> oh, not, maybe not even so much Sweden anymore. I mean, they've had yeah. a huge spike in yeah. crime in Sweden. So we've got enormous questions about the flow of people, both for tourism and for migration. Um, we have enormous questions about trade. None of us know what that future holds. Now, this is not to say we can't do anything. We, we, we need to act. We need to act purposively. But we need to be talking to each other about what we're trying to achieve. Let me well, just take a very simple yeah. example. Sorry, go on. Mm, mm, in, into that list should be climate chaos. Oh, absolutely. Because that's going to throw a cat amongst any of those little pigeons you were talking Ab about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I would take just here's a very simple example. Supposing after COVID settles, let's suppose it does. I'm not sure of that yet, but suppose the COVID thing settles down and maybe it mutates and becomes a little bit less aggressive and it's not desperately effective and it's no quote worse unquote than influenza, which is bad enough. Okay. What does the future look like out the other side? Well, lots of people have worked from home. And we've decided lots of companies, I'm working one with one in Melbourne now, an old friend of mine runs, and they're working sort of week and week about. So we have a week in the office, a week at home, and they've got two shifts, as it were. And this is, okay, supposing lots of people do that. What does that do to the rental market for office space in central Sydney? What does that do to returns on property investment? What does that do to your superannuation fund? <laughs> 2008 all over again. Yeah. Meanwhile, people aren't travelling into work. What does that do to um, emissions? Probably a good thing. Okay. Well, as we saw in China, how quickly the emissions dropped and how quickly they rose again. Absolutely. Good thing for the planet, bad thing for GDP. Well, that's a really nice way of thinking about it, mm. isn't it? Because, and then of course you're going to see all these knock-ons. You know, there's no there's no system that can't be gamed. Donkeys years ago, I went to uh, to Latin America. I'm a bird watcher. I was on a bird watching trip, and the bird watching guy, who Canberra-based bloke, said, "Oh, you need to get a yellow fever because we're going across in so this is Africa, going across into Malawi." Okay. And then into Zambia. So I went to the, the health thing here, you know. And the doctor wouldn't give me yellow fever. He said, what's this for? I said, well, we're going from Malawi to, to Zambia. He said, there's no yellow fever in Zambia. I'm not, you know, I'm not, not going to take the risk of injecting you. Fair enough. So I get on the plane, I get over there. And I say to the guide, um, you know, I haven't got this thing. He said, yeah, I know there's no yellow fever in Zambia. But the border guards don't know that. He said, don't worry about it. So we hop in the think go downtown and for five bucks I get an authentic yellow fever certification <laughs> now subsequently I've been to countries that had yellow fever and I got the proper one but you can't tell the difference between the two why do I tell you this because Qantas says you're not going to be able to fly without a vaccination certificate and if I'm a forger 
I'm rubbing my hands thinking, ooh, <laughs> there's a nice new market for crime. <laughs> as, as there was with passport crime. Or, you know. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So every system you come up with has complexities. Every system can be gained, gamed, mm -hmm. and many systems that are put in with really good intent can end up with negative feedback. Mm -hmm. I can't immediately think of a plausible example, but you, there are lots of them. We do this for this good reason, but ultimately, well, I'll give you a really good example, okay? Um, opiates. No, forget opiates. They're relatively harmless. Cocaine. Cocaine, when it's synthesized out into a pure white form, is a lot of fun, apparently, but it is also quite dangerous. Let's prohibit it. Well, the minute you prohibit cocaine, you have created the most fabulous rate of return for illegal capital. <laughs> yep. Alcohol prohibition. Alcohol yeah. prohibition. So all of the good intention. Prohibition is a wonderful example. Prohibition, when they brought it in in the United States, was supported by people who today would be greenies voting the Green Party. It wasn't the crazies. It was the progressives. Right, because they could see the harm that cheap grog was doing to the working class. Yeah, there was a women's Christian temperance union as well. But even again, that was generally that wasn't sort of, you know, what um, uh, Whitlam called Bible bashing bastards. It was genuine concern. So for good reasons, they brought in prohibition, and we all know what that led to. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to um, I'd like to bring it to solutions now. Mm. We're starting to run out of time. Mm. We've done a pretty good exploration of the of the soil, I guess. Um, how can we feed that soil? How can we get all the little microbes in the soil and everything growing, and so that we can get a really good crop of grass? I think I think there's some some relatively straightforward answers, but to get to e executing them is not so easy. For a start, I'll go back to the taxation and transfer system. We, we, we have to stop this nonsense that cutting taxes, cutting taxes, cutting taxes is good. It isn't. Okay? You cut your taxes down to a certain level. Uh, you can't afford the social services that you need. It's, a, it's like not being able to put fertilizer into the soil, to continue that metaphor. So we need to, but, but we, it's not just a question of, oh, you will stop doing taxes. It's about we have to have a national conversation about this. We have to change through conversation. We have to influence people and bring them on board and have this discussion so that we can share ideas about what taxation is supposed to achieve. Most people are actually quite reasonable. When you sit down and start saying, that dollar you gave over there paid 25 cents for this school, 13 cents for those roads, whatever, actually realize why we tax. Okay. Well, this gets back to the idea of being fair again, right? We're seeing tax right now as not being fair. Yeah. And, and as it, going back to the Adam Bad example with the yeah. rice, yeah. and you've got the people with the mountain of rice paying less tax than the person with one grain of rice. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's really important. And I think that's why um, indirect taxation is problematic. Now, I'll, again, I'll give you an example here. I was initially fairly against the GST. I had a colleague who um, we went to school together in Britain a thousand years ago, and he'd been a very senior um, accountant for some big companies, and he was madly in favour of GST. And I said to him, why? He said, you don't understand, Stephen. I can tell you that for big companies, taxation is discretionary. Hmm. He said, much. if we put a 10% GST, that won't be discretionary. We will get some money off some companies. So maybe the GST in that regard was, wasn't a bad idea. And it has raised, and it hasn't been so retrogressive 
that you'd point to it and say that's a, a big evil thing. Was it Houston that wanted to bring GST in here? Uh, I can't right? remember who originally. I think originally, but it was it yeah. was Howard who actually did it. Yeah. Mm. And I think Houston didn't get elected because people were really scared of the They, GST, they ran a scare yeah. campaign, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. And to be fair, no, again, I'll make a, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, broadly speaking, tend to vote Labour rather than anyone else, but I think Labour did very badly when, mm. when um, Howard came in because he, he did have a mandate for the tax mm. and they should have sat down and had a conversation with, okay, well, it's going to happen. Can we do it in a civilised fashion? Instead of which they, they blanket opposed it. And so Howard ended up doing deals with the, the Democrats and, and, and some of the results mm. of that were fairly crazy. Um, but we need to have this debate about taxation and we need to see that progressive taxation in which the, the, the more wealthy people pay a higher proportion of their income over a certain level. This is not an evil form that leads to the gulag archipelago, right? This is not about mad communism. This is about reasonable behavior that ameliorates inequality. It doesn't hurt the rich this notion about it stops entrepreneurialism is not true unless the taxation rates are absolutely extreme mm. so you're looking for that sweet spot where the taxation rate is high enough to bring the money in but not so high that people can't be bothered to be energetic in the market i guess if you're designing a taxation system or you're trying to put in a new tax you're you're inevitably thinking of well, I want to tax what's bad and encourage what's good. I'll give that money to what's good. So in this case, we might be thinking inequality is no good, so we'd be taxing the rich and giving it to the poor to level out those extremes a bit. But um, I guess that leaves it open to the the king of politics, the stories, the, the stories, the overall stories that we're telling, like you were saying, the, um, the economic fundamentalism the, yeah. the neoclassical economics yeah. has a very different view of what's good from what i would have yeah yeah well i'm not even sure that they have an idea to be honest with what's good with a big g they have an idea of how people might want to behave and and again in 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 when we say take from the rich to give to the poor i think we need to be thinking that in giving to the poor there might be three ways that we're doing it one is that we're not taxing them as much you know, so the lower ratios of incomes are secondly is that there might be some financial direct thing but it's also a question of providing good social services now again i don't want to overdo um this i don't want to suggest that this is just necessarily fabulous but if you look at the uk for example the greatest single shibboleth the greatest thing that all the people in the united kingdom seem to agree on is the national health service is a good idea and I'm, I'm, not again, I'm not against the notion of private health. I'll, I'll give you a footnote example of that in a minute. Um, but I am in favour of there being a good, solid, basic health system. I, you know, if you're unemployed and you haven't got a dollar in your pocket and you fall over in the street and break your leg, I want to know that an ambulance will pick you up, take you to hospital and give you good care. Period. I don't want... And this is a true example... My, then, my wife, who before we were married, fell over, literally fell over and broke her leg in, in, in a, a U.S. city. And as they came to pick her up, the first question is, have you got in health insurance? And as I've seen, having lived in North America, I've seen people walking up the street with gunshot wounds and nobody offering any support because yeah. they're saying flat out, I can tell by looking at that person, that person doesn't have health insurance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I said, I'll, I'll give you a footnote about health systems. I did my PhD studying doctors. 
long story back in the UK 2,000 years ago. But I've never <laughs> forgotten, um, you know, this sort of situation. And this is a real example. Yes, um, Scott, you definitely need um, the surgery on that. It's not, a, it's not an acute problem, but you do need that surgery. Um, I can put you on the waiting list. Um, I think it'll be about 18 months. If you come to my private clinic in St. Mary's next week, I can do it the week after. So the, the system was there and it provided basic health care, but it was sufficiently slow that the same surgeon who had a private practice as well as the National Health Service practice could say to you, of course, if you want to jump the queue and you've got the money, buddy, we can do it for you over here. So there are limitations. But, I mean, I'd rather live with a mixed system like that that allowed the surgeon to have his, you know, Bentley or whatever, um, but also made sure that you were picked up in the street and that you didn't have a gunshot wound walking up the street. So we need we need to look at that system and we need to ask the question about that. But I, it's not that I – what I don't want to be doing is saying, right, here's the right answer. We do this, 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 and this. What I want to say is here are the issues. Here's the evidence. Can we have a conversation? Can we look for – you know the Goldilocks thing about the porridge that's mm-hmm. just right? You know, it, it's, not, it's not right to have a totally socially, centrally planned economy. We saw that with the Soviet Union. It's not right to have rampant free market. You can see what's happening with that in the United States. There are sweet spots. How do you and I and, let's say, Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese and Adam Brandt and farmers in, in Longreach, how do we have a conversation that will allow us to move that forward in constructive ways that will raise enough cohesion and enough consensus that we don't have people then storming out of the door saying, we'll oppose you to the death, right? And so a civilized society produces sufficient well-being for everyone. How are we going to get there? It's not going to be easy. There will be winners and losers. We have to have the conversation and we have to do it in a way that brings people together rather than drives them apart. I mean, I think this is part of the problem with, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a strongly in favor of democracy, but that notion that the Americans had back in the 1700s about the tyranny of democracy, you know, 51% have got it and will slam it down the throat of the other 49, is not the way that we need to be moving forward. So you talked about that it's not reinventing the wheel, it's widening the scope. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously not reinventing the wheel. The notion that the, the, the good conversation is the basis of an ethical society goes back at least as far as Aristotle, <laughs> which happens to be about two and a half thousand years. Well, what, if the, what if the fundamental story and the fundamental system of our whole, of our whole society, the, the competitive law system, the adversarial political system, what if all of that is what's causing a lot of these problems? How do, we, how do we get around that one as well? Well, I mean, let's think about this. Next door to you in the office, I noticed next door is the conflict resolution service. Mm-hmm. We actually do have lots and lots and lots of things in a, a modern society like this. We are not just – I mean, you're right. There is an adversarial system in our law. 
Um, and, and there are lots of questions that legal scholars could explore about how we can do it better. But we're not just into that. There are lots and lots of mechanisms that currently exist. Lots and lots of groups and organizations. Some of them aren't, you know, take the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. I'm not saying it's a success, but the concept that we will manage the Murray-Darling Basin and we will try to get the states talking to one another and we'll try to get the Queenslanders to stop arguing that because the rain falls there, no one else is entitled to it, you know. Mm. You know, there are lots of ways that we can think about doing it better and most of it's about being patient about treating other people as worthwhile even if we don't agree with them and finding a basis for conversation so for example i'll give you an illustration take anti-vaxxers what do i share with people who don't want to vaccinate their children I share the belief that we want to do well by their children let's start with that let's see if we can have a conversation from there Okay, I know that they don't trust science. I know that they believe in things that I personally think are mistaken. But me waving my finger and saying, you're wrong, <laughs> is not going to get us anywhere. You get heels digging in yeah. when you do that. Yeah. yeah. So, so exactly, and we get this backfire effect. So, you know, continually reaching out, what do you think? Mm. Tell me about that. Okay, I think, what do you think about this that I've just said? Let's have these conversations. We're getting back to listening. Right. That's mm. what we started this whole. I mean, but ironically, I've sat here talking, but yeah. really, I'm. I'm <laughs> but we're listening. We're listening. Yeah, I know. I'm advocating <laughs> listening. Yeah. yeah. I guess going back to that Murray Darling Basin thing. I mean, the way I see the Murray Darling Basin Authority is they've tried to create a commons, but they've done it using capitalist rules, and it's completely failed because it, it's not. It's not the right. It's not the right it's, model. Yeah, it's a square peg in a right ho round hole. Yeah, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll not only agree with you, I'll add to that. Back in the late 90s, Tony Blair picked up this idea of the third way, mm -hmm. the combination of social democracy on the one hand and the market on the other. What Blair never did was to ask about the micro-politics. If that's what the macro-politics are like, what would the micro-politics have to be like? And the micro-politics always failed because they stayed inside conventional bureaucratic civil service models. You don't get the right model, you don't have the right conversation. You can't go to the right place. So perhaps we could, uh, we're almost out of time here, um, perhaps we could just quickly touch on something that you had mentioned um, before and it was a concept called appreciative inquiry mm -hmm. um, this seems to be a solutions driven concept yeah what is appreciative inquiry and, and how does it work it was originally come uh, invented by a guy called cooper Ryder, and he brought it in at, at um, the level of organizations it's very simple actually let's supposing we have two two organizations two schools let's say and they're both struggling with the same problem i go to school a and you go to school b I walk into school A and I say, what's the problem and how can we fix it? You walk into school B and you say, what's going well? How do we get more of that? And Cooper Ryder's insight, which was very simple, he, and he experimented actually in his case with hospitals, he showed that when you asked the second question, you got much more change, much more quickly and much more effectively. And it goes back to something we were talking about before about humans are not rational. If you were a, a rational robot, it wouldn't make any difference which question you asked. But humans are not like that. When I say to you, what's going on in your school, Scott? You immediately become negative, blaming, and defensive. And it's going to take us a long way to get past that. But I walk into Zena's school and I say, what's going right in your school, principal? And immediately I'm raising optimism, I'm raising positivity, I'm raising capacity. 
So appreciative inquiry models are about asking what is going well and what are we doing well? How do we get more of that? Now, in Australia, if we ask that question, there's lots of good answers. And those answers can be extended to doing better. So we are already, relatively speaking, a democratic country compared to many others. We are already, compared to many others, a happy country. Our trust levels are actually higher than many other countries. We're not perfect, but we could have more of that stuff. And if we had more of that stuff, we'd do better still. If we sit around and whinge about what went wrong, then all will, you know, we'll all be ruined, said a Hanrahan before the day is out. You know, we'll, we'll end up in that kind of negative. We don't want to end up in that negative pool. And I think that's what's a lot of what's wrong with with uh, uh, modern party politics. Um, you know, as I said to you before, I'm broadly speaking a Labour voter. Do I think this federal government did well in regard to COVID? Yeah, I actually think they did pretty well. There's lots of other stuff they're doing I don't approve of, but I want to give them a, a, a tick for positive responses to the initial COVID stuff. And so instead of us say, well, the government did that pretty well, how can we get them to do more of that? Oh, no, the government are wrong on this. Oh, the opposition are wrong on that. And it's that, that oppositional, I'm right, you're wrong, doesn't take us anywhere. Yeah. Well, that's a really lovely way to wind up. And if, if our listeners would like to find out a bit more about your work, perhaps there's someone out there who'd really like to engage your services and get some um, support with their business, or if you have any upcoming events and workshops and training, where would they go to find that information? Well, we're just opening up our new website, actually. It's probably the best thing. <clears throat> um, for kinfordconsulting.com um, and we're just revising our website to cover that stuff off and there will be links in that to the resilience questions you asked because we've been running this subgroup on, on cohesion and trust and democracy. Wonderful and we can pop that link into our Facebook post You, sure, you sure can and I'd be delighted to hear from people and when I say that I'd be delighted to hear from people who've got questions or disagreements or tell me why I'm wrong you know um, I've reached the age where I'm sure I'm right, but I'm probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone was very curious because I was just checking to see if we had any listener questions came in late, and we didn't. And usually that means everyone's really curious to learn about what you've got to offer and what you've got to share with us. So Curiosity uh, I think is a questions will come thing. later. Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful to have you in studio this morning, Stephen. I really appreciate your time, and I, we, we could have done a whole extra hour on this. This was fantastic. So that was Dr. Stephen Mugford from Kinford Consulting, and hopefully we'll have Stephen back maybe in a few months' time and hear how things are going. It'll be lovely. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be here.